Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Earlier this year, we featured ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez on this program talking about ProPublica series, America's Dairyland, risking workers' lives for the milk we drink. This series of articles focuses on the dangers immigrant dairy workers face, particularly on small farms that operate with little safety oversight. For the series, reporters Melissa Sanchez and Mariam Jamil have interviewed more than 100 undocumented current and former dairy workers. Reporting for this series also helped lead to the Dane County Board of Supervisors recently allocating $8 million for farm farm worker housing, as well as to the Dane County Sheriff's Office first written policy on how to respond to residents with limited English proficiency. And we'll definitely talk about that today. And we're also going to focus on the series' most recent articles, a number of them now. And we'll start in particular with dairy workers on Wisconsin small farms are dying. Many of those deaths are never investigated. And another article, OSHA investigates small dairy farms so rarely that many worker advocates don't bother to report deaths and injuries. So a lot to talk about in those pieces, and we'll talk about a couple of pieces just out as well today. So joining me to talk about these articles and the series America's Dairyland is Melissa Sanchez, reporter at ProPublica focused on immigrants and low-wage workers. Her work on Chicago's punitive ticketing and debt collection system helped in driver's license suspensions over ticket death. Welcome back to A Public Affair, Melissa. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And welcome, listeners. Today's conversation is pre-recorded, so we are not able to take callers today. Melissa, let's start by having you tell us more about who's doing most of the work on Wisconsin dairies and what conditions they work in. Just a a general overview for um, folks listening who might not be so familiar with the current state of Wisconsin's dairy industry. Sure. So um, currently there's I don't know how many, maybe between 6,000 and 10,000 immigrants who work on Wisconsin dairy farms. There's also white Wisconsinites who own farms and who, who work on farms. But a lot of the work that's kind of being done behind the scenes, whether in the milking parlor or shoveling manure and scraping it off into manure lagoons is being done by immigrant workers. And these folks t- work long hours, um, typically 70, 80 hour weeks. And it's worth noting that there's no overtime pay for agricultural workers. So there's no time and a half pay for those additional hours. And a lot of folks do it because they wanna, they wanna work a lot of hours and they make money to pay off immigration debts and send money back home. Um, and conditions are, can, can vary really significantly. It's, it's, the reason is because there's not a lot of oversight on Wisconsin's dairy farms. The, the, the federal government's OSHA program doesn't um, inspect safety standards on farms with fewer than 10 workers, or with, sorry, with 10 or fewer workers. And a lot of Wisconsin's dairy farms are smaller than that. And that means that the, the work can be very dangerous and it's not regulated. We'll talk about some of those dangers and the intricacies of regulation or, or lack of it as we continue here. But um, also it might be helpful um, just to hear a little bit about where um, those workers are coming from. What are the countries of origin of most of these workers and has that changed over the last few years much? Yeah, um, I think so maybe 20, 30 years ago is when immigrants started coming to do this work. Um, as- got bigger and they needed to rely on more um, paid labor so folks outside of the farmers families and so a lot of people originally came from the state of Veracruz in Mexico and that's in southern Mexico a lot of them were indigenous folks from from that part of the country and they it's, it's the whole chain migration where you have one or two brothers and then like a nephew would come and a cousin would come and a neighbor would come and soon enough you have the entire village from 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 these indigenous communities in Veracruz here and over about a decade ago, Central Americans and particularly folks from the northern part of Nicaragua have started coming and the same chain migration happened. 
And that's really exploded in numbers in the past few years, as we've seen like a, a, a wave of Central Americans coming and seeking asylum. A lot of them have been folks coming um, specifically with the idea of working on Wisconsin dairy farms. And how do they find out about um, these opportunities on, on dairy farms? Is it those family connections for the most part? Yeah, it's so interesting. But like the immigrants themselves have become like the HR and the recruiters for farms. So you, like I said, you, you might have a brother who works on a farm and, and then he knows that a colleague is leaving. And, and so there's like going to be an open spot. And so either somebody else in his family might show up who's already living in Wisconsin, or, or they could let people back home know there's going to be jobs on the farm where I work and people come. And so a lot of the people we talked to, they, they heard back home, whether in Nicaragua or Mexico, there's good jobs, there's, it's heavy, difficult work and a lot of hours, but there's, there's really tangible benefits for people, even though it's dangerous, even though it's dirty, even though there's a lot of problems and exploitation. Um, I mean, people are coming from, from poverty and, and, a, and a dollar is a lot more than a peso or a Nicaraguan Cordoba. It goes a lot farther um, for, for their families back home. And, and so, so yeah, it's, it's word of mouth. Um, and then once people are here, if they, there's a, there's farms, there's a lot of constant turnover on farms. And sometimes it's a reflection of farms that are harder to work at where there's uh, fewer workers and more work. So the pressure's just, just higher. Those are constantly recruiting. And so there are some like official recruiters who do the job, but mostly it's been word of mouth that you'll have somebody who will just put, put out a message on WhatsApp to their, the people in their contacts that the farm where I'm working is hiring. It's $12 an hour. It's a night shift, this many hours, and there's housing. And, and then people start coming. Is that a fairly typical wage, $12 an hour from what you're learning? What we've been hearing is between eleven and fifteen dollars an hour. It really depends on the farm, and and there's 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 different benefits um, that can come too. So a lot of workers live in employer provided housing. That could be anything from a little trailer on the property to the farm, the farm owner's basement to a nice house down the road to an apartment in town, and um, and sometimes the housing is just for male workers. So it might be a house with six or seven men. And sometimes if it's a, a worker with their family, it might be like a, a husband and wife who work on the farm and their two kids. So the housing is a really important component that sometimes gets factored into the wages. We've heard workers who say that they get paid less than their colleagues because they get provided a they get provided housing. In other farms, it doesn't seem to factor into the wages. It's, it's sort of all over the place. But generally, 11 to 15 is what we've heard. There's been some exceptions of people who make less and some that make more. So it's, it's more than the minimum wage in Wisconsin. Um, I think I haven't heard of anybody who's gotten paid under the minimum wage, but the, but again, it's worth noting that there's no overtime pay for these workers who are routinely make, working 30 to 40 hours in addition to the 40 hours a week. We'll talk uh, in just a minute about some of these most recent articles in particular, but tell us also a little bit more while we're getting the lay of the land here about this series you're doing and how long you've been working on this project and, and what you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, so I, it's, it's interesting. I started looking into dairy farms more than two years ago now. Um, I was interested. I live in Chicago, and we have a mandate in our office to cover issues across the Midwest. And I'd heard of a, of a fire at employer-provided housing in on a dairy farm in Michigan where, th where three men died. And I was really interested in like the housing regulation. And I had no idea that there's employers who provide housing in, in this way. And there was very little oversight, very little news coverage of what happened. And it just took me into this rabbit hole. And I, we started looking more broadly um, across the Midwest. And it made a lot of sense to focus on Wisconsin, given just the, the number of farms. And I know the number of farms has declined dramatically in the past decade, but it's still close to 6,000 farms currently. Um, and so we we don't we kind of set off very broadly to see, like, in addition to housing, what other issues can we look at? And we quickly learned how dangerous the work is and about deaths and, and kind of inconsistencies in OSHA oversight. Um, and then we, we, we just kept coming across cases that were absolutely fascinating. And so eventually, you know, earlier earlier this year, we published our first story on, a, on about a death in Dane. And we've kind of been rolling out stories ever since. And I think um, we have the green light to keep reporting next year. There's a, there's a lot of stories in Wisconsin. I haven't even done that Michigan story yet. Okay. 
Um, we'll look forward to more forthcoming pieces about this important issue. And let's dive in now to um, some of the work that you've been doing most recently. Um, one piece in Dairy Workers on Wisconsin Small Farms are dying. Sorry, I'm not, I think I got that. Sorry, there's no in there. D- dairy workers mm-hmm. on Wisconsin small farms are dying. Um, you tell some really difficult stories in that piece of at least 17 workers who've died on Wisconsin dairy farms since 2009. Um, let's start with one or two of those stories that encapsulate this issue that you looked into for that piece. Sure. Um, so... <sighs> Maybe we can start with the death. Um, the, the very first one in 2009 that we started looking into was of a man named Jose Candelario Zacarias Rayon. And he was from Veracruz, like a lot of these men. Um, and he worked on a, on a small farm in central Washington, sorry, central Wisconsin. Um, and and I, I think one one morning he was doing the job that a lot of a lot of these workers do on farms which is uh, to drive a skid steer, which is like a small tractor with this kind of like bucket instrument in the front that you can use to kind of scrape manure up off the floor of a barn. And then you pick it up and then they, they drive it to a nearby lagoon that's just essentially filled with manure. And it's it's hundreds of thousands of pounds of manure. It's pretty amazing. And you dump it in there and then you go on and you get some more. And, um, and, and at this particular farm, there was no barrier between, there was no, there's no real protection to ensure that the machine didn't slide into the pond. Um, and there's very little regulation to ensure that that happens. Nobody checks to see if farms does that, do this. Nobody at the state or county, the federal government, there's a lot of suggestions and guidelines of what you should do, but nobody polices farms to make sure that farms are safe, especially farms that are this small. And so one, one morning, this man um, drove you know, this bucket of, of manure into the lagoon, and then he fell in and he drowned um, with, the, with the entire machine. And my colleague, Mariam, talked to one of the firefighters that was there that day that helped pull him out. And, and he described how his body was just soaking wet and like the inside of, of his, you know, when they opened his mouth, it was just filled with black liquid. Um, it's, I, I can't imagine a more gruesome way to die when you're essentially like suffocating and drowning in manure. Um, and so this man, like a lot of the people on this farm and other farms, was an immigrant, he was undocumented, and he lived in a trailer on the property, which is just, just like I said, really standard in Wisconsin and a lot of states that have a, a high number of small dairy farms, um, and it's unregulated housing. But that, that's that's kind of the, the way that he lived, and, and he was from Veracruz, which I keep bringing up because there's been this... this uh, this pattern that farmers and researchers have seen over the years where people go back and forth to, to their home country. Um, you know, a lot of people are here, on, they're, they're here illegally. They might be here for five, six, 10 years and then return home, hopefully with enough dollars to build a house or open up a small business for their family. So that's kind of like the, the landscape of, of, of one of the deaths. And, and so we were interested in this death because it happened on a farm with fewer than 11 workers so um, according to the federal government, the Congress has banned OSHA from doing its job on farms with fewer than that many workers. So there's, there's something called agrarian exceptionalism where farms have just like the government's kind of done a lot of hands off on farms because they're, we, we want to protect the small farmer. We don't want to over, overburden them. But the result of that has been that deaths like this man's typically don't get investigated but in the, in the course of you know doing all this over, like kind of early reporting i was requesting files from osha of all the accidents behind. and what was interesting about this was that even though it was a small farm osha did go ahead and investigate the death and that that was interesting because it was a small farm and what we found was that there was it's, it's sort of like an exemption to the exemption where OSHA says that it will not, it, it cannot enforce um, occupational health and safety laws on farms with fewer than 11 workers unless there's a temporary labor camp. And OSHA in this case, and in many others we found, decided that that trailer on the property counted as a temporary labor camp and gave it jurisdiction to inspect. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her ongoing investigation with fellow reporter Mariam Jamil of the lives of undocumented immigrants on Wisconsin dairy farms for their series America's Dairyland, Risking Workers' Lives for the Milk We Drink. So, um, Melissa, you were just telling us about one really difficult story of a death on a dairy farm, and there are many others in that piece. Dairy workers on Wisconsin small farms are dying, um, and they die of uh, all kinds of occupationally related issues. And OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has what they call the dairy dozen of dangerous jobs on um, dairy farms. Could you tell us more about some of those uh, dangerous jobs? Um, and uh, maybe um, what the consequences have, have been for of these jobs for other folks you've reported on? Yeah, so the, the manure lagoons is high up on that dairy dozen list. Another one that's high is, is these skid steers themselves, these machines that people use on the farms to pick up the manure and to do other work, sometimes to pick up feed for animals and, and take it to them. Um, it is kind of incredible how many different ways people can get crushed by those machines. But if you can imagine the arms of this, this type of tractor that's kind of between like a tractor and like a high-low, um, the, the workers sometimes, if the, the, the piece of the machinery, the bucket is lifted up high, the, if a worker's cleaning the machine, sometimes the, mach the bucket just drops automatically. And we wrote about two deaths where this heavy metal bucket, I, I don't remember how many pounds it is, it just falls on top of a, of a worker and it just, it crushes them like a soda can. Um, and, and, you know, in farmers, there's been a lot of farmer deaths in Wisconsin of people who, who die when the tractors, a more traditional tractor that they're driving will roll over and, and they'll get crushed under the machinery. You see those all the time too. Um, I think, I think th those are the, the, the most significant deaths we've seen. There's been some where workers wind up inside of tanks that had or have um, a kind of whey product, or they might be emptied, but the fumes from the whey are really toxic at that concentrated level. They might get dropped in, or they might crawl into one to clean it out, but the fumes kill them before they can leave. Um, there's, there's, it's just, it's really horrific. <laughs> it's really horrific how people can die. And then, then there's more minor, there's m minor kind of making air quotes, they say, uh, I, I, I shouldn't. There's a lot of trampolines. So people die, get, they get trampled by cows and, and they get trampled by bulls. A cow, a Holstein might weigh 1,500 pounds. So if one squashes you, it's really hard to survive. Um, people get injured all the time too, though. They get constantly kicked by cows. Cows are just big, unpredictable animals. And depending on the setup of a milking parlor, a, a worker might, in a more antiquated milking parlor, a worker might be in a position physically where they're lower than the cow and they're more propensed to get kicked in the face. So we've talked to lots of workers who've had all sorts of injuries from, from cows. But it's it's a range of awful things. Yeah, uh, it is dangerous work. And of course, um, not unique and new to farm work. Um, Farming is a dangerous occupation, um, but what is particularly unique and vulnerable about immigrant dairy workers is the lack of, of legal protections, right? And, and the lack of, uh, in this case, you've been investigating OSHA's response to immigrant deaths. So um, we'll stick with the, the, the OSHA investigations that you've looked into so far, and then we'll move maybe into some of this more recent reporting on injuries in a little bit. Um, what were OSHA officials' responses about why they opened investigations into some of these deaths and not others? I know you reached out to them, and there's kind of, like you said, a little bit of a, a arcane network of, of regulations governing this. But um, how do they respond when you ask them about this? I wish OSHA had been more clear in its response, but they haven't been. So what we can see from the records is uh, in cases that are remarkably similar like there was another guy another guy from Veracruz who died this year who also drowned when the skid steer he was driving like slipped into a manure lagoon almost the really similar circumstances and and the guy also lived in housing provided by the farm um just like the uh the first one a debt more than a decade earlier and OSHA came the next morning um and then turned around and left I think 45 minutes later 
And in their notes, which we requested, they, you know, they said that they weren't going to investigate. The farm was exempt because it had too few workers. And they said that the worker did not live on the farm, which was factually inaccurate. Um, and we pointed this out to them, like, oh, maybe you made a mistake and didn't realize that he lived there. And by the way, another guy lived in the trailer on the property. And we kind of described all the workers that we could tell from records and from interviews lived on the farm. So given your past work, OSHA, of investigating these farms when there is housing, like why, why didn't you consider this housing a so-called temporary labor camp that would have given you jurisdiction to inspect? And OSHA's only response to us was that the inspector who showed up didn't find evidence of a temporary labor camp. And so it's it's not, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It just, it seems like in some cases, OSHA is deciding that housing is considered a temporary labor camp. And in others, it's not, even though the conditions are very similar. I think the word temporary is what's, what's, what's kind of at issue here. Um, so dairy work and like a lot of agricultural work in this country is not seasonal. Cows are milked year round, 365 days of the year. And other kinds of agricultural work, like picking apples or strawberries, um, is seasonal, and it's a lot easier to understand that as temporary. But if a, if a dairy worker has a year-round job, can that be considered temporary? That's kind of the question that I think that they that a lot of OSHA folks have gotten stuck in. Um, and in, the, in that earlier case I mentioned from 2009, the OSHA investigators who looked into it were really clear when they explained that this relationship between the employer and the employee was temporary in nature because the worker was an immigrant from a community of people who went back and forth and the farmer hired these people with the understanding that they might go back and forth to their home country. That made it temporary and that made the housing temporary. Um, but, but OSHA hasn't been so clear in that explanation in other cases. And kind of from, from our perspective, we've talked to a lot of these people and it's the same essential relationship. And one thing that's not said in the OSHA records um, in part because they, they're not supposed to really ask about it, all these workers are undocumented. And so kind of like, I would argue that the, the relationship between the worker and the employer is necessarily temporary because workers have no legal right to be here and there's, their, their ability to be in this country, country is precarious. But that's, you know, that's my argument. But OSHA just hasn't, hasn't been very responsive or helpful. And that makes it difficult for everybody. Workers don't know that there's an organization, a government agency out there that's supposed to protect them. And farms don't know that they're under OSHA's jurisdiction. So farmers, I think, rightfully are surprised when OSHA shows up sometimes. Um, I mean, the, the, the law says that regardless of whether your OSHA can enforce it or not, like, employers are supposed to provide safe workplaces for their employees. But if it's understood widely that even though that law exists, nobody will enforce it, then it's hard. It's like, it's easy to, to see why some farms might not be so safe. Mm -hmm. And why do you think these farms sort of fly off the radar in terms of, of OSHA jurisdiction more broadly? Is it because the regulations have been designed for uh, a model of agricultural work that, like you said, is is more for seasonal migrant labor? Um, and that's so that's the problem with that word temporary? Or is it because the dairy industry has shifted so much in the last couple of decades that the, the regulatory apparatus hasn't caught up uh, in I, some I, sense or maybe something else? I mean, I, I think it's both of that, especially this, the second piece, but I mean, this law was written in the early '70s, so that predates when the when the when dairy, you know, Wisconsin dairy in particular, went from very small to very very gigantic farms. Um, but I I think that the housing bit was was wasn't really. I think it was an aside to be to begin with, and it was designed. I think you're right. It was designed with more seasonal workers in mind. There aren't a lot of farm. There, there isn't a lot of agricultural work that's like dairy that's year round. Um, and, and, and dairy has just been excluded from so many laws and programs because it is different because of the size and because of the year round nature. Um, I think there's been a lot of, it's been really difficult to change that. I think there's been different Congress people over the years who wanted to get rid of this exemption for small farms. And it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. The lobbying from the farm industry is incredibly powerful. There's a lot of money that goes into it. It's hard to change what you have. And I think 
advocates are reluctant to reopen the limited protections that do exist because they don't want those to go away. So, I mean, Wisconsin has some laws that protect migrant and seasonal agricultural workers, but the, but but I, I sense that there's there's fear of really reopening that existing law and then having a, a, a right wing like state legislature to say, oh, this is an opportunity to just hack that away more as opposed to making it more expansive and protect more workers. Yeah. And to be fair, like the system is exploitative, right? But on the other hand, a lot of these small farms in particular are sort of scraping by with a precarious uh, economic model that relies on exploiting vulnerable laborers, right? So another layer, you could understand the resistance to another layer of uh, regulation that might make it harder. I don't know if that's something you hear from farmers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's expensive. It's expensive to make things safer. Um, yeah. I talked to a farmer who has a large operation, um, and she talked about how on one of the shifts, they have they, they milk cows three shifts a day. It's basically a 24-hour operation because they have so many so many cows. And, um, and for some of the shifts, I think they had three workers in the milking parlor. And at some point, the workers were just run ragged and there was a lot of turnover. Kind of what I was saying earlier, there's a lot of turnover on some farms depending on like the pace. Mm -hmm. And and people kept quitting and they thought, what if we add one more worker to the shift? And maybe there's going to be a, a couple of moments during during an hour where our workers are like taking a break. But they decided to do that because it's okay to take a break sometimes. And, and the turnover dropped dramatically afterward. But that costs money. It costs like another person's salary for you know for, for that shift and if it's you know three shifts a day you know uh, 365 days a year that, that that adds up so not all farms can do that and we've we've seen that in a lot of this is just anecdotal this isn't based on a scientific study but we've seen that the smaller farms that kind of operate on these these kind of wilder really really intense short shifts have they have to cut they cut corners they cut corners with like human personnel um and and it's it, when when a worker is working at that intensity and, and, a, and like I said, 70 or 80 hours a week, you're exhausted. Um, that you're more propensed to make mistakes or, or you know things are less safe when when you're that tired and working that hard. Yeah. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her ongoing investigation with fellow reporter Mariam Jamil of the lives of immigrant workers on Wisconsin dairy farms for their series, America's Dairyland, Risking Workers' Lives for the Milk We Drink. Um, you've mentioned housing a couple of times, Melissa, and that has been the subject of one of the positive things that's come out of your reporting so far. Tell us about your recent reporting that led to Dane County allocating funds to house dairy workers in the area. That was a really unexpected and amazing thing that happened. But earlier this year, uh, our first story in the series was about the death of an eight-year-old Nicaraguan boy on a small farm in Dane County. And the boy lived in a milking parlor, in a little apartment above a milking parlor with his dad and a couple of other workers. Um, he had just come to the U.S. a few months earlier with this, you know, along with this wave of people from Central America who were coming into this country. It was easier to come in with a kid at the time. And so his father brought him here and his father worked in the milking parlor. And while the dad worked, the kid would be upstairs without a whole lot to do, uh, maybe playing on his dad phone, dad's phone. There was no TV in the room. Um, and, and he'd often go outside and talk to the adults. And on the night that he died, uh, there was a new worker there that night who had just, just started and was learning how to use a skid steer and didn't quite realize that there was a boy running around on the farm where a child should not be at that hour and he didn't see the boy and he ran him over by accident and killed him. And we wrote about this story because of, for a number of reasons, but one of them was that the um, law enforcement got it wrong. They thought the dad had killed the child um, because there was just a massive language barrier between the father and the, and the deputy who interviewed him that night while he was hysterical and understandably screaming for his dead son. Um, but what also really was interesting, we, we wrote the story 
And um, like I said early on, the very first thing that drew me to this entire issue was housing. And we still haven't done a story about how housing is unregulated and all over the place. But we noted in the story that this boy lived inside of a barn with his dad in bunk beds at this place. Um, and, and we, I think that fact really struck people in the community. And even though the story was not about housing, it was about a dead child and language barriers. Um, some of the, some of the uh, Dane County supervisors were really moved by the housing piece. And, and so there, there was, there's been some reforms, like you mentioned at the top, um, related to the Dane County Sheriff's Office, and they're finally getting this written policy in place about what to do when you encounter somebody who doesn't speak English. But separately, the, the supervisors had drafted a, a plan to create, to set aside $8 million in capital funds for housing for, for farm workers. And it's, it's, it's a result of this story. And it's, it's really amazing because immigrant dairy workers, there, there are no good public housing opportunities for them in the state. And I think some states do things a little bit differently, but in general, the programs that exist in Wisconsin are geared toward that seasonal workforce the, that, that we talked about earlier, and this is not seasonal work, and sep or, or separately, these, these you know, really important programs exist that require you to have papers, but dairy workers don't have papers. And so they're, they're, they're excluded from the limited housing options that exist. And, and there's been, we've heard, of, we've heard a lot of advocates in different parts of the state who, who, who wish that there was some housing option that they could send dairy workers to, but, but they can't. And as a result, people like this boy and his father ended up living in a barn for a few months until the boy's death. So um, I don't know how much you've kind of been briefed or been able to learn about what um, the program is, is planning to do. But do you know anything about like what this housing is proposed to look like? Is it sort of going to be at various locations, off-farm locations? And um, are they going to be looking or asking for papers? Um, or is it just going to be kind of first come, first served? It's all really good questions. I think it's too early. Right yeah. now, they, they, they wanted to do an assessment first of what the housing looks like and then go from there. But I think those are all good questions. I think there's concerns about, um, you know, some states have programs where they give money to farmers to improve housing on site, such as to improve the living conditions there. I think there's some concern about doing that, though, because you give employers the, 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 the kind of this uneven power dynamic remains between employers and employees. But it's, it's just worth saying that in Wisconsin, you know, we've, I think I've been on the show before, um, Wisconsin bans undocumented people from driving and people get ticketed left and right for driving without a license. And so there's a very good reason why a lot of workers prefer to live on the farm and it's because they can avoid getting pulled over by police. And so it's just something that I think local officials are gonna have to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Like if you do build housing, Maybe you make it available to people who are undocumented. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Then you're going to miss out on some people. If you a yeah. lot of people, if you, if you do that, but having it offsite is also tricky because Dane County Sheriff's ticket, the sheriff's deputies ticket people for driving without a license, and tickets start at two hundred dollars, and they and they only go up from there. So it's complicated. There's not a really good easy solution. And so many intersecting issues uh, in thinking about something like housing, for example. You've mentioned, Melissa, a lot of kind of patchwork regulation with OSHA, and um, you just mentioned the different state policies regarding uh, driver's licenses and undocumented people's ability to acquire driver's licenses. What's your sense? I noticed in some of your recent reporting, you brought in more comparisons with other states. What's your sense of... Um, it, labor uh, safety regulation enforcement in Wisconsin uh, versus in other states that have a lot of small dairy farms like New York and Vermont. Um, and uh, is there something that we could be advocating for here in Wisconsin to, in particular, change the situation, the, the overall vulnerability of workers? Yeah, so a few things. One of the biggest differences I've seen in Wisconsin versus other states is that there's there's no labor organizing for dairy workers here. And there aren't, there is in other states. There's really substantial work that's been done and is being done in New York and Vermont. Those states are the easiest to compare with, with uh, Wisconsin because of the high number of, of small farms. Um, and and those and that organizing in Vermont has 
has changed state law there so that undocumented people can drive. And I think in, in New York too, it was largely in response to the to the immigrant farm worker organizing. So the the lack of that in Wisconsin has has just left people more isolated and disenfranchised, I think, than in other states. So that's separate from the regulatory framework. Um, in in New York, uh, you know. So both, so New York, like Wisconsin, relies on federal OSHA to do safety inspections on farms. Um, so they're both dealing with the same federal bureaucracy that says that it can't investigate deaths on small farms. Um, not every state is like that. California, all the West Coast states have their own OSHA programs that go above and beyond the federal OSHA. And so in, in California, you have a farm with one worker and then OSHA has regulation, but that's not the case state by state. So Wisconsin, I just cannot imagine would create its own OSHA agency to do more work, but that, that that's an option. Um, Vermont is interesting because Vermont does have its own OSHA program, but it does not go above and beyond what the federal OSHA does. It does the same thing. So, so there was a death uh, 10 years ago and change, I think 2009 actually, of, of a worker who got mangled in machinery in a, in a, in a barn and, um, and, OSHA, and he lived on the farm and OSHA came and went and small farm, so they didn't do anything. But that death did really catalyze a lot of the, the the farm worker organizing, which is really interesting because there's I think it's the main death everybody in Vermont can point to. Whereas here we've had more than a dozen worker deaths in that time period. And it's it's just fascinating that there's been zero of that kind of organizing. There's been legal advocacy and there's been some some service oriented work, but not not labor organizing in, in, in Wisconsin. Um, and one last regulatory piece that I, I think is is worth mentioning. Um, and is the subject in part of our, our most recent stories is in some states, um, the workers comp system covers all workers. And when, you, when you're talking about farms, employers, farm employers are required to have workers comp insurance regardless of how many workers they have. They can have a, just one worker and they have to have workers comp insurance. That's not the case in Wisconsin. So the Wisconsin law, is excludes um, the, ex excludes small farms from the requirements. So farms with fewer than six workers don't have to get workers comp, and 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 that that harms workers because workers are getting injured left and right on small farms. But there's no there's no workers comp system to turn to. Um, the, their only option is to file a lawsuit, which is incredibly difficult for immigrant workers in particular to do. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her ongoing investigation with fellow reporter Mariam Jamil of the lives of immigrant workers on Wisconsin dairy farms. Their series is called America's Dairy Land, Risking Workers' Lives for the Milk We Drink. So this is a, a long-term effort to better understand Wisconsin's dairy industry, and in particular, the vulnerability and issues that uh, immigrant dairy workers, which the industry relies on to bring milk and cheese and all kinds of other dairy products to all of us to, to get uh, those products out into the market. So you mentioned just now, Melissa, your most recent reporting piece is just out on injuries in particular. And for this, you talked to more than 60 workers who've experienced injuries at work on dairy farms and um, the many difficulties uh, associated with being injured at work if you are an undocumented immigrant dairy worker. Um, tell us about some of those issues they're facing. You mentioned workers complimented ago, but there's a whole big uh, kind of nexus of, of issues around injury issues as well. Yeah, so we've talked to 60 some odd workers, um, all but a couple of them were undocumented and who, who told us that they were injured at work. Sometimes they have documentation of the injuries, often they don't, um, largely because they don't get medical treatment. So, you know, you we ask people like, have you been injured at work? And almost always the first answer is no, just, just the usual. And you're like, what does that mean? Have you been kicked? Yeah. Have you been squashed? Did you see blood? Have you fallen? And yet, when, once you ask those questions, then you'll learn that people have 
been injured and it's so routine, it's like normalized, it's just like a part of the job to get hurt, which isn't the case for my job. It's not the case for your job. You don't normally like have computers like crashing on your head and like mm -hmm. blood and like swollen things and you don't wake up with pain, but this is like just a regular daily experience of these workers. Um, and so that's the first part that injuries are absolutely routine, even though they're very rarely documented. Um, and two is that when they tell their employer that they got hurt, the response often is, this is normal, keep working. And so workers struggle to get medical care. They don't, you know, they can be like lying on in a pile of manure on a barn floor, unable to move their legs after they've been crushed. And the boss will tell them, just go rest it off in the house, like, you know, in the, in the farmhouse. Um, we've talked to a lot of workers who've experienced that. And, and so they don't always get medical care. They don't get time off to recover or paid time off. So if they have to take off two weeks because they lost a finger or some hand or a hand, or because they were literally paralyzed from the leg down, they're not getting paid for that. Um, I mentioned the exclusion for workers' compensation for small farms. So that's significant, but also even for large farms that do have workers' compensation, the same is a situation of employers brushing off the injury or telling you to go back to work, this is normal, is really routine. And kind of what underlines a lot of this is a, a, a fear of retaliation, that if I speak up or if I say something, that I will get fired. Um, I thought I would hear more, you know, that I, I will get deported, but it's not quite as explicit. It's more, it's more about losing your income and your job. And, and, and with it, for a lot of these workers, is losing your housing because you live on site. Um, and almost every single worker that we talk to has either been fired for having an injury or knows somebody who has. And that's significant. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine in your own job that if one of your coworkers get injured, gets injured doing work-related work, that they get fired and evicted at the same time. It's, it's crazy, but this is really, really common. We, we talk to a lot of people who experience that. Um, yeah, and then the workers' comp system is, is already difficult to to navigate if you're a white English speaking person who has a, an education, um, a lot of people get lawyers to help them make sure that their workers comp claim like gives them what they believe they're entitled to. And a lot of these immigrant workers don't get lawyers for because it's, it's difficult and they're working 80 hours a week and they don't speak English and it's hard to find a lawyer who is bilingual. Um, and so workers on farms that do help them pay the medical care costs through workers comp um, they, they don't feel made whole. So we've talked to people who've lost four fingers and they got some workers comp for a few months and some workers comp will, will pay the medical costs and a portion of your, of your income, let's say two thirds of your income for however many months. But if, you know, a few months go by and you're missing a hand, you don't feel like that was enough to compensate you for what you've lost. Um, a lot of the people we've talked to only, only were able to get their medical care covered through, medic, through through workers' comp. There was no additional payments and they're missing limbs or unable to walk or unable to work anymore. Um, and kind of what's been really interesting about all of this is that there's no, as far as I can tell, there is no state or federal agency that has any idea how many workers are excluded from the law. So the workers' comp law excludes farms with fewer than six workers from the requirement of having workers' compensation. Nobody in the state can tell me how many farms are excluded, how many workers that means. And I think that's that's a huge failure. Mm -hmm. That's something that the state could do, and if it cared more, it would, because these are humans who are literally putting their lives on the line, on, on the line for, for Wisconsin's milk. And they're constantly getting hurt and there's very limited protections for them. And we don't even know how many of them there are. So from the workers we've talked to, like all, every single one of them was, was had been injured. Only, only maybe a dozen of them got any kind of workers comp. Most of them go without medical care or they pay out of pocket. I talked to a guy a few weeks ago who had just been kicked in the face like a few days earlier and had broken a couple of teeth. And he worked on a small farm with no workers comp insurance. And he told the, the farmer like, Hey, look, 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 you know, I've seen pictures of his face and the farmer gave him a piece of paper with a name and number of a, of a clinic that accepts uninsured people and, and just like left it for him to deal with. So he got injured in, Mar in, in November and 
you know, we're at the end of, of December. He isn't going to see a dentist until early January. And he's been told it's going to be two or $300 per tooth. He expects to pay it out of pocket because like he can't imagine pushing his, his, um, his farm, the, his employer to, to do anything because he knows he's here illegally. And he said to me, like, what am I supposed to do? What, what, what are people like me supposed to do? And so people either go without care or they go into debt to, to, to pay for limited care. Um, we talked to a lot of people whose bodies just don't work the way that they used to, who are unable to, to have jobs. We, you know, we talked to my colleague, Mariam talked to a man who suffered a concussion, memory loss, and, and an injury to his spinal column after, after an injury on a farm. And he got some workers comp to cover for some of the um, medical costs but he hasn't been able to work since. His wife had to get three jobs at different farms and as a house cleaner, um, and he feels useless. He said something like, I, like I, I just feel like I'm good for nothing after this injury, and, and he's been discarded kind of at the end of it. And I think that's sort of the, 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 the bigger picture image that I, I, I think we wanna leave people with that these folks have been, they're, they're disposable. They're completely disposable under the state law and the systems as, as they are right now. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, what you describe in, in many ways as I listen to you reminds me of something like out of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle or something, you know, that despite the fact that much progress has been made in terms of labor safety and regulations and exploitation in American workplaces, there's still so much to be done. And then, of course, the issue of having whole swaths of the workforce not have any legal rights um, because of being undocumented leaves that whole swath of the workforce so vulnerable. Um, I'm curious, in the, in the few minutes we have left here, Melissa, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about your reporting itself. Um, clearly, uh, you do very in-depth interviews with the people you talk to. Are you um, generally uh, permitted to spend time on the farms that you visit with the workers as well? Or maybe not generally. Have you been able to? We have visited a lot of farms um, with farmer's permission, but that means that you're on a farm where the farmer is okay with a reporter hanging out and talking mm -hmm. to their workers. So that's going to be a limited um, kind of farm, <laughs> very special kind of farmer. So we, we have visited a lot of farms with permission. And then we've also visited workers at their homes, and sometimes that's on farm property and sometimes it's not. And that's a little bit easier to do because people can receive visitors legally without having to ask their boss for permission. But it's it's a bit of a dicey situation for a reporter to walk onto a property and not be called on for trespassing. So we we, we, we are very careful in, in, in how we do this. But I, I'd say the vast majority of the people we've met, we've had to do off property. So we visited um, 80 plus little Mexican or Latino owned stores all over the state. And we, we just hang out there. We go to these stores because workers are really isolated. Sometimes they only leave the farm once every two weeks to cash their checks and buy groceries. And so we know that if we just hang out long enough at these stores, a worker will show up. And so, and so we've been doing that. We go to stores, we've made lots of beautiful flyers with QR codes that lead to our work and with our cell phone numbers and a clear explanation of what we're doing and who we are. And we, and we leave them at the stores and sometimes we talk to workers there, we'll go, we'll go to restaurants, we'll go to apartment buildings where we know workers might live and we just knock on a lot of doors and we get told no a lot. Sometimes we'll spend a week in Wisconsin and maybe only have successfully talked to three or four workers in that time, but they're really, they're, it's, it's worth it. And every worker we ask if they have friends and everybody has friends and some, some of them will put us in touch with their friends, a lot of them won't. I've posted in all sorts of Facebook groups. Uh, uh, I, I started using TikTok and I make TikTok videos of myself mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have some farm worker followers now, very few who have talked to us, but it's, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Um, but yeah, I think word of mouth and then we start getting calls from the flyer sometimes of people who are, who, who, you know, I got a call a few weeks ago, right as we were writing the story about how workers get evicted after an injury. I heard from a young woman whose father 
had just been fired and evicted from the farm where 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 they all lived, where a man and his wife and two children lived. He got tendonitis in his right hand from repetitive motions at work, and the farmer um, fired him and evicted him with very little notice. And they were homeless, living um, in the in the living room of a trailer of, of a relative for while they figured out what to do next. And and she had found our flyers and they resonated with her. So the reporting has been really, it's been different. It's been unlike anything I've done before. It's really difficult. And I don't live in Wisconsin, I live in Chicago. So we have to drive up there, but it's it's just incredibly time consuming to find people and get them to talk, but, but it's been really rewarding. Thank you for giving us that window into this, like you said, really challenging work and the the time that you put into it definitely comes through in the pieces. Um, these are not easy stories to find and elicit from people. Before we let you go, Melissa, I want to ask real quick for a preview of where this series is headed next. Um, what are you currently investigating and what, what should we look for in the coming year? Well, we, we have to get some, we have to negotiate a little bit with our editors, but I still want to do a story about housing. <laughs> I would like to write about that one day. Um, we're interested in wages and, and kind of a lot of people don't get paid the last week of work. We're, we're trying to figure out how and whether to, to look into that. I think there's a broader immigration story that we could do. You know, the elections are coming up again and it's it's this very known open secret in Wisconsin all these people who work on these farms are are here legally and ICE doesn't do anything about it. And we're not trying to like, you know, raise a flag and, and call immigration here, but there's something wrong with our immigration system that allows this workforce to exist and doesn't allow a clear way into the country for people who are going into industries that clearly rely on them. So maybe on that, um, we've also heard of a number of cases of workers getting assaulted by their bosses. Um, that's something we, we might look into, but we're, we're always interested in tips. So if any of your listeners have ideas, we're, we're happy to receive them. Well, thank you for this important work and for talking um, with me today, Melissa. I've been talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her series of articles, America's Dairyland, Risking Workers' Lives for the Milk We Drink, co-written with Mariam Jamil. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, Melissa. Thanks again for coming back. Thank you for having me. If you have appreciated today's show, please share it on a public affairs online archive or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer and producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman, for your help. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on a public affair here at WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come